All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, these are the words of our God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the tr fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it, and you shall not touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, so she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Then they had heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave to me from the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in conception. In pain you will bear children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife Eve, wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Then Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he send forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore Yahweh God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, guide us, we ask, by your word and Holy Spirit, 
that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord we pray, and amen. Be seated. Well, I want to begin our time by reminding you of what we've seen so far in our study of the early parts of Genesis. Genesis 1 is the prologue for the entire book. The prologue for the entire book of Genesis is Genesis 1. Its most striking feature is the fact that it sets the stage for the unfolding of God's kingdom plan. Here we find that the triune God has revealed himself in and through the creation of all things, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Remember, out of nothing, that means without any pre-existing materials. There's no big bang with eternal matter colliding over billions of years. Rather, we have God's active and sovereign creation word, which is God's law for creation. In six literal 24-hour days, God creates and fills the world, the crescendo of which is the creation of mankind. Genesis 1, man is the purpose of creation. Man is the purpose of creation second only to the display of God's glory. Why did God create the world? For his glory. That is the answer to that question. But the secondary answer is, is of course, to make man in his image. As the absolute Lord and King of all space, time, and matter, Yahweh God makes, upholds, guides, and rules the world. That is the tone we find here in the early parts of Genesis. Law itself, an expression of wisdom, is the manifestation of God's sovereignty in creation. Furthermore, the establishment of God's eternal law word in creation means that man, as a responsive creature, capability of response, ability, he must seek to adhere to the norms of God's law as he grows and as he matures. Being the crown of God's creative efforts, that's emphasized again in Genesis 1, man's task is to positivize or to put into practice the norms God has established for creation and for the covenant, what we call the covenant of works. So God put man in a context. That context is the covenant. Man's job is to mature, to put into practice the law that God has given them, most certainly, God gave Adam certain laws, certain procedures, put things in place, um, and he would have grown and known more about that as time went on. Uh, but, of course, his time in the garden was cut short, as we'll see. As we saw in Genesis 2 last week, Adam was given several gifts. The first gift, obviously, is life and breath. Uh, God made him out of the dust, breathed into Adam's nostrils the spirit breath of life. That is a great gift, the fact of existence is a gift. The second gift was a garden nursery whereby Adam would be schooled in the ways of Yahweh God. That's the garden sanctuary was the place where Adam was to learn and grow and mature. He was to develop the ABCs of the, of the alphabet. What, did, what, did, what language did they speak in the garden? The answer is, I'm not sure. Many Jews believe it was Hebrew, and that's just the ancient language. And so, I just, it's mind-boggling to think that God hears the thousands and thousands of languages that every day pray to him, and he understands them, and it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's like an orchestra, all the people of God learning and to praise him. But that was the garden. The garden was a nursery. It was uh, for him to grow, to learn to walk, how to cultivate and mature. He needed to learn math and science and all the other things. The third gift was a vocation. 
God gave him a vocation, a calling, a task, working and keeping, cultivating and guarding the sanctuary, this garden sanctuary. That was his role, was to take the earth, to discover it, to, to work it, to grow it, mature it, um, horticulture, agriculture, grow plants, learn science. He was to do all of those things uh, for the glory of God. And he was also to protect it. So work and keep, cultivate and guard, guard the garden. I think I mentioned last week that those Hebrew words are actually related. So gardens are meant to be guarded. The fourth gift, of course, the, the best gift was a helper wife. God gave Adam a helper wife to love, to have children with, uh, and to share in the workload of building a family and building a culture. She is the help mean. She comes alongside the husband to help him, to make sure his belly's fed so that he can go back to work. Uh, he, he gives to her, she multiplies, she grows. Uh, the, the beauty of, of a godly picture of marriage is, is, is here with man, his vocation, his calling, and a helper suitable to aid in that great calling. So all of these gifts were to be stewarded by Adam as he grew up into maturation, as he, as he grew up in understanding God and obeying God and refraining from the tree of knowledge until God said he was ready. He wasn't to have the tree of knowledge yet. He needed the tree of life. He needed God's sustenance. He needed to go there first so that he could be mature enough to be able to discern between good and evil and then go out into the world. And as we'll see this morning, obviously, we know the story. Adam wanted kingship on his own terms. That is what the tree of knowledge represented, to be a judge, to be a king. And uh, Adam wanted it on his own terms, on his own volition, and thus he plunged the world into sin and ruin. So let's work through the text here. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 25, the last verse there, we're told that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were arom, naked, and they didn't experience the shame of sin in terms of their relationship with God. There's a connection between shame and nakedness. Uh, they didn't experience any of it. Uh, however, we find in verse 1 here of chapter 3 that the beast serpent, that is Satan, Satan the fallen angel who took on the form of a serpent, he was Aram, that is crafty. So there's a play on words here. He was deceptively sly. There's a play on Hebrew words which is meant to grab, grab our attention. Uh, the Hebrew language is beautiful like that because certain words are emphasized and they sound the same and they're meant to make the connection. So they were naked, Arom, and the serpent came who was Arom. And now we're, the stage is set. Moses' intention, Moses the writer, his intention is to make sure it is clear that the serpent is a created being. The serpent is a created being and that evil is simply the creature's attempt at ethical deviation from God. You have that problem solved already here in the early part of Genesis. Because the, the yin-yang, the, the Eastern mysticism, there's all of these different views about evil and good, and where do they come from? And maybe God is like half evil and half good, and how do we sort this out? Well, we find out here God is good, and that evil is simply a, cre a creature who's gone astray. God isn't both good and evil, Again, as some cultures surmise, the serpent is a creature. We're told he's a beast of the field and in no way has the feature of being self-existent like God. Even Satan's own existence is derivative, just like our existence is derivative. Uh, Satan isn't Jesus' brother. 
Uh, Satan is a fallen angel who here shows up in the early parts to deceive. Now, because of the wordplay, I think it's my estimation that Moses, Moses intends for us to see that the serpent is an invader of innocence. The serpent is an invader of innocence. I think that's why the Hebrew wordplay is there. The serpent came in, he invades their innocence, he invades their holiness, he invades their goodness. He's a beast of the field. Note that. He's a beast of the field, he's not a beast of the garden. So he's an unwelcome guest whose craftiness will uncover their nakedness. He will pollute their holiness. That's, I think, what we have set up here already in verse 1. So he's an unwelcome, crafty, sly beast. And yet God, in his sovereign plan, obviously God supervised the test for his children. It wasn't as though, oh no, Satan took on the form of a serpent and showed up, and I didn't know. How is that possible? God knows all things, he sees all things, and he knew as part of his plan that this was how it was supposed to take place. Now the first thing Satan does is circumvent Adam and go straight to Eve. They're both there. But for whatever reason, the serpent goes after Eve. Adam, remember, he heard the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He heard it directly from God. Now, Eve wasn't around yet. She was made after, and so Adam was the one who had to communicate this to Eve. Now, the serpent sees Eve as being the weaker link in the communication of God's law word. He knows. He knows that Adam was told, Eve heard it secondhand, that's the weak link. I'm going to go after her. Now, question, kids, think about this. I've, I've been asked this a lot. Could animals speak in the garden? My answer is, I don't think so. Speaking requires a higher function in what we call the modal aspects of life, meaning that animals stop at the sensorial or the perceptive part of life. They don't go on to the logical aspect. They don't develop language, and they certainly don't have the ability to reason uh, in terms of like what distinguishes us as humans from animals. I don't believe that animals could speak. Um, the serpent speaks here. It, I, it would have been an audible communication here. The serpent's animated by the devil. I think that's, that's why. Now, I, it didn't shock Adam and Eve, you know, if you're out playing in the woods and a snake walks up and starts talking to you. You and I are surprised by that, correct? Um, but I, they weren't surprised by it because I don't think they knew otherwise. I don't think they knew otherwise. They were freshly made, if you will, human beings in a garden. And so I think perhaps maybe they assumed it was part of the plan all along. Oh, a talking snake, of course. What else do we have here? You know, that's probably why they weren't um, Shocked. Side note here, keep in mind that it's my belief that this test happened on the morning of the seventh day, the Sabbath day. I, I think that they were supposed to be in the garden to worship God, and then this happened. So I, I think it happened very quickly. They didn't have time to, to mature yet. The test was very early. They were to, to worship, serve God, worship and serve Him on, on the Sabbath day. Their first day of existence was supposed to be a Sabbath rest. That's why on Sunday we connect to the Lord's Day. Um, Christ is our Sabbath. He takes on um, being our Sabbath. But here we have the Sabbath day being their first day, God's seventh day. But of course, they ended up succumbing to the serpent's lies. At any rate, the first question is meant to undermine the arrangement. 
the serpent asked this question to Eve. Was it really God who said? Was it really God who said? Note that the serpent says God here and not Yahweh God. That is, when you're reading your Bible and you notice words change, um, this is an important one because Satan removes, uh, he removes Yahweh's name from the equation. He, he speaks of God generally. To, to remove God's covenant name is to attempt to move God's self-revelation from the conversation. So ser the serpent, the devil is not going to address God as his covenant name here. He's just going to go with the Hebrew word Elohim instead of Yahweh Elohim. And by the way, side note, beware of those who speak about God in generalities. Oh, I love God. Yeah, me too. Cool. Which, which one? <laughs> beware. Eve responds to the question correctly. Uh, Eve responds correctly in saying that God did tell them to eat of anything and everything except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She says in verse 3, which is in the midst of the garden, the tree in question, that tree is the tree of knowledge. She knew. She knew the right answer. That's the one that we're not supposed to eat. Now, some people think that Eve did a bad job communicating to the devil uh, you know, that, that which Adam would have explained to her. You know, Adam told her and then, well, she just did a bad job of rehearsing because in verse 3, she adds this phrase, you shall not eat from it and you shall not touch it. And people generally say, well, that's not, God didn't say that. God did not say that. He just said, don't eat it. And then she finishes saying, lest you die. Well, Bible readers, I think they, they, I think they add that into the text. But when you read, for example, Leviticus 11, you realize that the thing which is forbidden shouldn't even be touched. That's actually part of God's law that would come later in Leviticus chapter 11. Um, when you touch something that you're forbidden, you become unclean in Levitical law. So I think she does correctly communicate the command of God. I think she understood when Adam came along and said, we're not supposed to eat of that. And she, in her mind, she's saying, yeah, and God is holy. We shouldn't even touch it. She's not adding to the command. She's not adding to the law. That's just how they understood. And we'll get in a couple of weeks to the Cain and Abel fiasco because there's a similar connection with that. So I think she, she understood. She understood that clean, um, uncleanness as a result of handling that which is forbidden is actually a symbol of death. Therefore, no one should touch it. Now, in contrast to Eve's solid, what I think is a solid declaration, the serpent lies to her in verse 4. Go figure, the serpent lying. He says, you surely will not die. Adam should have intervened and spotted the lie right there. He was standing there watching it unfold. He should have intervened. Eve should have sought pastoral counsel from her husband. But everything breaks down here. Everything breaks down here. The serpent had trapped her. Now in verse 5, he actually follows verse 4 up with a truth, but it's on the heels of a lie. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's a perfectly true statement. Everything about what the serpent said there is true. You will be like God, meaning you'll have the wisdom and maturation to determine good and evil, to judge properly, to be a king and a ruler in the way you're supposed to be. So Adam and Eve were both to be like God, and, and why not? They're his images. They're supposed to be like God. They were to grow and mature and to learn to discern between good and evil. The problem is, 
The problem here is that they, the serpent wanted them to choose that on their own terms rather than wait for God's process of sanctification to take root. Uh, I believe it's in Song of Solomon, don't awaken love before it's time. There's this idea in Scripture that we can try to grasp and desire wisdom and maturation very quickly, and we want to be there, so we'll try to, to get it on our own terms, but we've actually then foregone, we, we forego the process that God has put in place for us. Now, to be like God, to be like God as rulers, clothed in God's glory robes, Adam and Eve would eventually, it's my contention, eventually eat of the tree of knowledge. They were to eventually eat of it when God said that they could, but only after eating the tree of life. And only after being mature, only after graduating and being able to do so. The argument broke down here when Eve accepted the serpent's terms in keeping Yahweh God out of the equation. Notice in verse 3, she didn't respond. Look, look at it in your Bible. Verse 3, she didn't respond to the serpent with Yahweh God. Instead, she simply said God. Have you noticed this before? She, she responds not with the truth of Yahweh God, the covenant God, the God we walk with in the garden and worship and serve. She responds vaguely like the serpent set it up. She responds. She gave credence to the fact that he tried to depersonalize God. Listen, the first step of sin is always a depersonalization of the covenant God. If you can get God to be this vague thing, then you can justify any sin you want. Having been twisted and knotted up in the serpent's crafty word games, we find in verse 6 that Eve saw the truth that the tree was good for food. And it was good for food. All of the trees were. It was a delight to the eyes. Indeed, God makes beautiful trees. The tree was absolutely desirable to make one wise. That was the point of the tree. The problem was they wanted wisdom on their own autonomous terms. They wanted the, matur the, the maturity without obedience, which can never happen. They wanted self-determination rather than waiting on God to mature them. They wanted to graduate college without first learning to walk in the nursery. They wanted to determine good and evil in a state of infancy, which is not possible. Parents, you understand this as we raise our children when, when our kids are three or four, we, uh, we can't really trust them entirely. No offense to you kiddos, but you're not really ready to make massive decisions in life. You're just not ready. And you can try to make yourself ready by seizing control, by aspiring on your own volition, but the fact is you're not ready. You're, you haven't graduated yet. And I don't mean school in a like, you know, government school sense, far be it. I just mean the school of maturation, the school of maturity, the school of sanctification. Now, Eve, Eve ate the fruit. It wasn't an apple, just to make note of that. It was a fruit. What kind of fruit? I don't know. There were pomegranates and other types of fruit and things in the garden. Maybe it was one of those. Or maybe it was own special thing that after the flood, it just went away and we'll never know. But Eve ate the fruit and she turns to Adam, gives it to Adam, and all of history has changed in that moment. 
the world is plunged into sin and ruin. Now, to be clear, this is how we need to read this text. Adam was self-deceived. Eve was simply deceived. Eve got it wrong. It was a bad judgment call. But Adam should have known better. Adam had the responsibility to what? To work and keep, to guard. And he, he simply was self-deceived. Satan stirred up trouble. He sowed seeds of doubt, mistrust, rebellion, and the invalidation of God. And then he set the terms of the discussion by taking over the narrative, keeping Yahweh God as far away as possible. Finally, Satan twists and abuses the truth in order to make the lie seem more plausible. This is how Satan works. Rather than taking the fruit in his hand, Adam should have taken his wife's hand after she had eaten of it and marched straight to Yahweh in repentance, asking God to kill him as a substitutionary atonement rather than bring death upon his disobedient wife. That's what should have happened. He, sh- he, sh- he could have knocked the fruit out of her hand. No, grabbed her by the hand, ran straight to Yahweh. My wife sinned. She, kill me instead. Let me die in her place. And when you think about it, that's ex- exactly what Jesus does. He dies in the place of his bride. But that's what Adam should have done. And that's what self-sacrificial masculinity looks like. Instead, God compounded the matter excuse me, Adam compounded the matter by proving his immaturity, by proving his lack of faith, and thus breaking the covenant of works. The covenant of works is the law of God set forth in creation there at the beginning, and they broke it. And that's the very thing that plagues all of mankind who are not in Christ. Those who are not in Christ are in Adam, and they are condemned by the covenant of works. They are condemned by the law of God. And only when they're brought to repentance by the Spirit do they move over into the covenant of grace. Upon eating, we're told in verse 7 that their eyes were opened. That phrase, eyes were opened. And that they knew that they were naked. And as a consequence, they had sewed fig leaves together in order to have loin coverings. They didn't make a full dress or anything. It was probably minimal covering for them both. Now, in the Bible, the private parts of a man and women are connected to shame. Uh, it's, this goes all the way back, obviously, to the garden. But note, note the pattern here. In Genesis 1, God made the light. God made the light. In Genesis 2, God made man, and man is to be the glory light. He is the image bearer to reflect the glory light of God. In Genesis 3, we have a, a change. Adam and Eve's eyes are open to the light of, the light of sin, air quotes there, What is the light of sin? It's darkness. Their eyes were open. This is why, by the way, in Matthew 6, when Jesus has this statement about the eye being the lamp of the body, I have have minimal doubt in my mind that that's what he's referring to, going all the way back to the garden. The eye is the lamp of the body. The eye is what brings light into it. So the reason Moses says here and tells the story this way, that their eyes were opened, is because eyes are, sim- are symbolic of judgment. We are to, that's why I have a problem with Lady Liberty and a blindfold trying to exercise judgment. No, you're supposed to use your eyes to judge righteously. You're supposed to see. So eyes are a symbol of judgment. Adam and Eve have now, in their immaturity and their sin, become immature rulers and judges without the training necessary to really discern between good and evil. 
That's what happened. When they ate of that fruit, they became rulers and judges with poor discernment. That's what they were supposed to do. The fake light of the serpent, which is actually darkness, has entered the eye and it has permeated the entirety of man's being, what we call the doctrine of total depravity. This is what plunged all of man. The way into a man's soul is his eyes. This is the same for men and women. That's how we, we um, when you look into someone and we even have a phrase for like, we stared into your soul or something like that. That's because that's how you, that's the entrance point. The eyes are the entrance point. So when their eyes were opened, it simply meant that they were judges and rulers. But the problem is what filled their eyes was not the light of truth. It was darkness. And thus it permeated the entirety of their being. In verse 8, Yahweh comes to meet with man on the Sabbath day, a day of the Lord judgment day, a day of assessment of God towards man. Adam and Eve, of course, they hide in the trees because of the sound. That word sound of Yahweh could be word. The word of Yahweh was approaching. Look at verse 9. Yahweh God calls out in verse 9, where are you? I love that question. That's like the kid playing hide and seek and they're just standing there with their eyes closed. You can't see me because I can't see you. It's really cute. It's adorable, really. That's what we have here in the garden. As though the sovereign lawgiver is incapable of seeing all that goes on in the world. I love the question, where are you? That's a good question for the little two-year-old who's hiding with their eyes closed. Where are you? (laughs) I can see you. That's what we have. Adam heard the word of God, and he responds in verse 10 with fear, not faith. He responds with fear. He was naked and now must hide his face from God. He, he experiences this moment of who I am is not going to work with who God is. I must hide myself. He has the shame. Rather than join the heavenly hosts in praising God with worship and communion, no doubt the angel is coming along with Yahweh in the garden and this parade of worship was happening. Instead of that, the time, though, was for judgment and Adam was scared. Guilt, which is exemplified in nakedness and impurity, was too much for Adam. Guilt plagued him. Yahweh, God, of course, is gracious, and he asks in verse 11 if they had eaten from the tree of the knowledge that was forbidden. He asks the question, he already knows the answer. Did you eat the cookies from the cookie jar as the crumbs are all over the floor? He's gracious. God makes it easy for Adam to confess. Fathers, mothers, when you do that, you make it easy for your kids to confess. You know, did you eat the chocolate and the peanut butter as the chocolate and peanut butter is all over the face? We're trying to get them to confess, right? We know, we see it, it's obvious. God does the same here. He makes it easy. A simple yes would have sufficed. Did you do the thing I told you not to do? Adam could have said, yeah. Repentance is always something we can avail ourselves to, by the way. So Adam blames God for the faulty gift of the woman. Send her back to the factory. Now, he doesn't blame Eve, actually, at least not primarily, in verse 12. He essentially says, you, God, gave me this woman. You. It's God's fault. The warranty was broken. Something went wrong. She led me astray, he says. Now, Eve is, Eve is the temptress here, but God is the giver, so it's ultimately God's, God's fault. 
Uh, men, never blame God for your, your wives, and certainly don't blame God for your own ineptitude. But Adam's sin is on display. He's joined forces with the serpent. He's on team Satan now. And we have an issue. God confronts the woman in verse 13. She says the truth. She just says it how it is. The serpent deceived me. I was deceived. I believed the lie. I was confused. He jumbled the words. I gave into it. I ate it. I ate the fruit because I was deceived. She just tells it like it is. And again, Eve was genuinely confused and deceived. Paul picks this up in in the epistle of 1 Timothy. But Adam was self-deceived. Adam was in active rebellion. Eve was simply mistaken. In verses 14 through 19, God issues his judgment on the happy couple and the serpent, of course. The serpent is directly cursed. He is now a lower form of a beast. He's associated only with death as he crawls on the soil dust. No, it doesn't mean that the serpent in the garden had legs and serpents could walk. It just simply means you're a serpent, you're crawling on the dust. Absolutely, that's the the dust you shall go. Dust is connected to death. It's symbolic of death and humiliation. So yes, the serpent's going to go on the ground. Now, Satan wants to consume men. Satan wants to eat and consume men and women. Uh, But God's going to consume Satan. And that's the great gospel promise And that's the beginning of the covenant of grace in verse 15. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman will be at odds. All of history is going to be marked by this. The Messiah Jesus will come and crush the serpent's head, albeit not without having his heel bruised in the process. Jesus had his heel bruised on the cross. But what was the cross? The smashing of the head of the serpent. So this is the covenant of of grace here. And by the way, the seeds will all come from the woman. The woman will give birth, and either that child will be a covenantly uh, faithful to the covenant or unfaithful to the covenant. If you're faithful to the covenant, you're a seed of the woman, you're a child of the Messiah. If you're disobedient, like we have stories, obviously, Cain being one coming up, Esau being another. If you're disobedient, you're a seed of the serpent. And all of history is this seed battle. Now, next is the woman. Not only the process of childbearing will be a challenge, but the raising of seed will be just as difficult. Adam provides the seed, but either God or the devil will be the child's father. Some, like Cain, will be actual literal thorns. Thorns. Others, like Seth, will be trees. The woman here is like a a fruit-bearing seed, uh, or a tree, rather. As she produces fruit, the fruit has seeds. She will have children. Um, and those children, though, are either going to turn out to be fruit trees or they're going to be thorns and thistles. She's going to need to cling to her husband. She will, she will cling to her husband. She Actually, she's going to be the woman, the wife in every, every marriage has this temptation. She will be tempted to override and dominate him. And men will be tempted to forego their responsibility. But the covenant headship remains in place, like it or not. Adam is the head of his wife, Eve. That's how it was before sin. That's how it is after. And despite his egregious sin, Adam still, he's still the head, as he was. And Eve's still going to be tempted to usurp this covenant dynamic. Now, Adam's next. The ground here is cursed. When, when God says that the ground is going to be cursed, the, the, the ground mediates the curse 
and thus sweat will drip from his nose as he works and he keeps with great consternation and frustration. The breath of life came into his nose. Now the judgment of God will pour off of his nose. Eventually, man will see the grave. You came from dust, you're going to dust. After all, the wages of sin is death. In a moment of repentance, however, I believe anyway, in verse 20, Adam names his wife. Now it was just man and woman, but now we have Eve. And Eve's name means life giver. She's life and resurrection will come to the world through her. I think that's a moment of repentance for Adam. He could have named her like deceiver lady, you know, or easily beguiled by the serpent woman, you know. He could have given her that name, but actually I think there's a moment of repentance here. He says Eve, life, he's putting the promise, the gospel promise of chapter, or verse 15, now into play. She's going to be the, the mother of all the living. And God is always a true father despite Adam's failure to mimic him. God, children, God's always a good father, and we need to know that he is a good father. And even when we as fathers, the men in the room that are fathers, even when we don't do what we're supposed to do all the time, God is never in that predicament. Now in verse 21, there's an act of atonement. Uh, there's an act of atonement or, or a covering. God covers Adam and Eve through a substitutionary atonement, a sacrifice. Animals were killed so that man could be clothed. Animals were put to death. Instead of Adam and Eve being put to death right away, they would eventually die, obviously, physically. That's, that's the condition now. Until resurrection, that's the condition of the earth. But animals die so that they can be clothed. So their shame, their guilt, their sin could be covered by the blood of something living. And rather than allowing man to stay in the garden nursery and possibly go to the tree of life and eat of it, what would happen if they did? They would stay forever in their state of depravity. And rather than doing that, Adam and Eve were exiled. They were sent out and forced to take on the dominion covenant in a state of immaturity. Now, this is always fascinating to me at the end here. Stationed at the eastern part of the garden were the cherubim, the cherubim. There was a flaming sword of judgment that apparently turned 360 degrees there, and that was put there to guard the tree of life. Entrance into the garden is now closed. The park's closed. Can't get in. How do we live in light of this? I want to take a moment. I want to explain these two sacramental trees a bit more. Most of us grew up thinking that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a bad tree. God made all the good trees, and that was just the bad one. And the tree of life, of course, is the good tree. And we, ha we kind of think of it in those terms. But I think this is false. Both trees are good. Both trees are good because God made them and he created everything and he didn't make anything that wasn't good. Both trees are good, but they're good in their respective time and place within the covenant. Remember that Adam and Eve, they were image bearers and they were given the task of dominion. They were to make the world like the garden. Before venturing into said dominion, they needed maturation. And again, that's what the garden was supposed to be. As James Jordan points out, and I do recommend his book, Trees and Thorns, he, he says it was supposed to be this way. Before sin came in, this is how it was supposed to be. Number one, a brief life in the world. Remember, you had the land of Eden on the east side, 
this side for you guys. On the east side, you had the garden, and then you had the rest of the world. Eden was a mountain, and the river flowed through the garden and then out into the rest of the world. So the garden was kind of like, it represents the, heavenly, the, the heavenlies. It's like a, the firmament in the sky represents the heavenlies. Um, you don't cross that barrier. Uh, you only go in to worship God, and that's kind of what the garden was. It was the schoolhouse. It was the garden park. It was the place to learn. They were, they, but they were supposed to go into the world and come back to the garden every Sabbath to, to be with God, to fellowship, to learn, to worship Him. And they were supposed to go into the world. So life in the nursery garden was the second part, granted by the tree of life. They were supposed to go out and work, realize they don't have the tools, go back and learn, partake of the tree of life so that they can be sustained and grow, trusting God by faith. And then third, they were to go back out into the world. But they were to be granted the tree of knowledge eventually. So life in the world, life in the nursery garden, granted by the tree of life, and then go back out into the world, take of the tree of the knowledge once God says you can, so you can discern, and then you go out and you labor and you work. Now the tree of life, the tree of life was a symbol of faith. It was a symbol of trust in God, the giver of life. It stood for fellowship and communion with God. Man was always to live by faith alone, even in the covenant of works. But Adam, Adam was supposed to eat of it, the tree of life. He was allowed to. He was supposed to go eat of it. He was to grow in it and mature by it. And Yahweh would train Adam in worship, train him in obedience, so that he would be equipped to carry out the task of heavenizing the world. Remember, that's the purpose. Heavenize the world. But you have to be equipped for it. The tree of knowledge would come later as a reward for maturity and faith and obedience but the tree of knowledge was the tree that would grant Adam the right to rulership, the right to judgeship. It would be the wisdom needed to execute the terms and conditions of the covenant. And rather than trusting God with life on his terms, life on God's terms, Adam wanted kingship. When, when they ate of the tree of knowledge, they were seizing the throne before there, it was time. He wanted kingship first rather than maturity. They wanted authority and rulership now rather than the servitude and the servanthood that comes before that. He seized what he wasn't ready for yet. And after being shown the door of the garden, Adam was still a king with a kingly calling, but now he's a fallen king. He's an immature king. He's a king with a proclivity to sin, at least apart from Christ. That's what and who he truly is. Now Jesus comes along, and Jesus comes along with a reversal of what Adam had done. He took on flesh in this, uh, he took on the flesh of this fallen Adamic king, and he took on himself the sins of all man. The priestly work of Christ came before the kingship of Christ came. Notice that. Jesus sought the tree of life first, and then the tree of knowledge, what Adam was supposed to do. And through wisdom and training, you'll remember, Luke tells us about this, Jesus' childhood was a mark of what Adam was supposed to do, um, growing in wisdom and learning and training. Uh, Christ's obedience and his training, you can look at Hebrews 5.8 later, Hebrews 5.8. Christ's obedience and training, where did it take him? To a cross. 
However, before going to the cross, you remember where Jesus was when they arrested him? The Garden of Gethsemane. The what? The Garden? Ah, Garden. We should be thinking something. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. His disciples came with him. You remember the story. But only Peter, James, and John went in a little further. They fell asleep. Remember, they couldn't stay awake. They're unable to keep watch. It's late, middle of the night. And the reason they fell asleep is because getting this close to the Garden of Eden is too much for the weak flesh of Adam. Only Jesus could actually go back into the Garden. Only Jesus could go in. And guess what? Do you remember what Jesus was doing praying? You know, Father, make this cup pass, but not my will, but your will be done. Do you remember how it's described in the Gospels? Jesus sweat drops like blood from his nose. There's a connection to Adam and going back into the garden by the, the sweat of your brow. It's actually, we're talking about the nose. The sweat comes down off the forehead and drips off the nose. And Jesus is this new Adam enduring the pain and suffering of mankind, sweating, dripping from his nose as though it were blood. Jesus is the only one, the only person who could ever go back into the garden. And what was the cross? What was the cross? Was it not him falling under the flaming sword that was there guarding the garden? Jesus is, we come to find out, the tree of life. He is a tree of life that is crucified on a tree of knowledge cross. And he became the restitution payment for Adam's theft of the fruit of, in the garden. Adam and Eve took the fruit. It wasn't theirs to take. That's theft. There needs to be a restitution payment. Christ is put back on the tree. On a literal cross, a little literal tree. And he wore, guess what? A crown of thorns. He wore a crown of thorns signifying that the curse of sin, which was mediated in the thorns of the soil, it exemplified, of course, thorny, sinful men. Now it's reversed. The thorns God gave Adam, he put on Jesus' head. So where Adam failed, Jesus obeyed. Where Adam was unable, Jesus was able. And on the whole, the, the book of Genesis is incredibly important for the mission of the church. A lot of the problems we face today could be solved if we understood Genesis 1, 2, and 3 the way that we should. Generally speaking, uh, Genesis 1 through 3 serves not only as the foundation for the rest of the Bible, but it serves as the foundation for all of redemptive history and the future of God's plan for the earth. One simply cannot try to inculcate the world with the gospel without understanding the dynamics of creation, of the fall, and of redemption in Christ. Consequently, understanding who God is, who man is, what God has called man to do, and how sin and redemption fit together, I think is of the utmost importance. And kids, this is what you have to know. You have to know this. What we must know is the unity and integrality of God's good creation. The, the unity of God's good creation, the beauty of it, the glory of it. We need to know the radical disunity of man's fall into sin and just how evil the hearts of men can become if they're not following God's will. And we also need to know the radical, restorative, and recreative redemption of Jesus Christ. Creation is good, when it's stewarded for the glory of God. Sin is terrible when it's indulged. And Christ's redemption is glorious when it's sought by faith. 
And we live in a world of sin and darkness, which is being appended by Christ the King. Sin, sin is the refusal to accept reality, the totality of all reality, including who you were made to be, on the terms and conditions God set forth by the power of his word. Bavink said this, and we'll end here. He said, the essence of the Christian religion consists in this, that the creation of the Father, ruined by sin, is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the grace of the Holy Spirit into a kingdom of God. That is what we bring to the world around us. That is the good news that we proclaim to all those who are apart, of, apart from Christ. For Adam and Eve, their, their adamant dereliction of duty was a religious decision. And it was a decision with sweeping consequences. And this is because all of life is religion. When Adam and Eve fell, their contumacious or their rebelliousness brought the curse of God's covenant into every area of life. It brought the curse everywhere. And we're going to sing joy to the world in a minute for that very reason. The curse was taken everywhere. And thanks be to God, though, that the Lord Jesus Christ, who we can call King Adam II, has undone this curse. And he is actively, by his Holy Spirit, undoing it as well. Thanks be to God. Father, we glorify you now. We thank you for what you have given to us here in Genesis 3. We are especially thankful that the fact that though we have ruined your world through our sin, you have sent Jesus to recreate, to redeem to restore that which we broke and we have broken. And I pray that you would help us in that. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be present and among us, working on us, work in the hearts of our fathers, of our mothers, the husbands and wives, work on our children, we ask. Bring us to that tree of life, Christ himself, so that we may gain the maturation we need to call those in the world to repentance and faith. Help us, God, to be trained in our senses, in our minds. Help us to remember that it is your spirit working in us that brings conviction of sin, that brings repentance and faith as well. We glorify you now as we approach your table, as we celebrate baptism, and as we sing to you, may you receive the glory in Christ's name. Amen.